Welcome to the Soccer Life Goals Podcast with your host, Noah Niemeyer. The Soccer Interview Podcast with fresh content, bringing you exclusive interviews with soccer players and growing the soccer fan base around the world. Whether you call it football or soccer, be inspired and encouraged, both on and off the pitch. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Soccer Life Goals podcast. So today, I've got an awesome interview planned for you guys. I'm really excited. My guest today, Trisha Taliaferro, has almost 30 years of experience, including at the national team, collegiate, and competitive youth levels. Taliaferro has an impressive background as a head coach for the U.S. Soccer U16 Girls National Team, assistant coach for the U.S. Soccer U17 Women's National Team at the FIFA World Cup in 2012 and 2016. Trisha was the women's head coach at the University of Illinois and the University of Miami for over 13 years. She currently oversees the ECNL girls program at TBU and is the head coach of the club's USLW team. Hey guys, welcome back to the Soccer Life Goals podcast. Today I have a really special guest, so let's welcome Trisha Taliaferro. Welcome, Coach Trisha. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thank you again. This is going to be an awesome interview, so we're really excited to learn from you. First question for you today, what was your favorite team and soccer player growing up and why? Oh, wow. Um, I grew up in Texas, so I would have to say, I don't know if you remember this, but there was an indoor, the sidekicks, the Dallas sidekicks, and Tattoo was um, one of the one of the forwards. So as a little kid, I used to go there with my dad and go to all the games. So I would probably say that was my favorite team kind of growing up. And um, track in, and he was my favorite player. Yeah, that's interesting. That's cool. I never, I've actually never heard of that before. Yeah, you're gonna have to do a little research and check yeah. that one out, huh? <laughs> Could you walk us through your journey as a soccer player and coach? As a soccer player, um, I started. Gosh, I grew up in Dallas and Houston, and actually Texas. So Houston, and then I moved over to Dallas. Um, so played for a couple clubs in Dallas, one being the Defeaters and one being the Sting. Um, and was fortunate to stay with those clubs kind of through my development. Um, and then I, as a Texas girl, thought that I was always going to live in Texas. So I decided that I wanted to go to school on the East Coast and go to University of Maryland, where we played in the ACC. April Heinrichs was our kind of head coach. So it was an exciting time for me to be able to go just to the East Coast, thinking that I was always going to come back, but I actually never came back. Lesson, lesson learned on that one. Um, and then from there, I was actually kind of decided between there wasn't a lot of opportunity past college because there weren't any pro leagues. We did some professional, like semi-professional, like summer league type. Um, but at that point, I decided either to go to international or to start in my coaching career. And I decided coaching was the direction that I wanted to go. So I stopped playing formally and started to coach at a pretty young age just because of the timing of kind of where everything was falling within that time frame as far as opportunities. You captained for two years at the University of Maryland. So what do coaches look for in leaders for their team? I think all coaches are going to have kind of a different answer to this. Um, what I look for and hopefully I was able to provide was kind of the stability and accountability um, intrinsically motivated, you know, I didn't need a lot of external factors to motivate me to go play and compete and work hard and 
um, put kind of my best foot forward. Obviously, you need to be passionate about what you do. But I think most teams that are successful or what I found to be successful is the player is almost an extension of the coach. So if it's setting the standards of the team or what the pulse of the team is going to be or how teams want to interact, like the, the players need to take that lead. Um, and I think that's a big piece that I think I was able to do for the two years. Um, we had a very close team, so it wasn't difficult to be a captain. It was just everybody collectively working together and we all had a common goal. So I think my teammates kind of helped me with that piece, but I would honestly say, you know, just the willingness to be able to step forward because people say they want to be a leader. And then nine times out of 10, like under high pressure situations, they don't want to, or they can't handle it. Um, and, or being able to navigate that piece. So I think, it's a, it's a longer answer for you, but I think there's a lot of pieces within that. But I think the intrinsically motivated holding people to standards and being able to lead by example fits your work ethic or how you handle yourself, fits character, you know, your communication with people um, are all things that I would not be able to say one point, but it's all collective. Say your team is down one or two zero at halftime. So what's the team talk like to your players and how is the message different from when you're up one or two zero? Um, I've always been taught <clears throat> and I've always kind of, when you're down, I think you'll see two types of coaches, right? One is they're going to yell at them and say, oh my gosh, you got to do better depending on their work ethic and focus and discipline, right? That's one talk conversation. But if you're down and you just need to make some tactical adjustments and you give reassurance and you're giving them confidence, um, reminding them, you know, the team is good enough. We've prepared for this. Like, just trust what you've, what your preparation has been. That would be more my approach on given, like I said before, that, you know, the work ethic is there and the focus is there. Like, that's a different kind of conversation. But I think in when you're down, you need to be more positive, more um, specific on the details on, okay, here's tactically what we need to do and then just kind of reference what the preparation was in training. If you're up, I think that's a time when you can kind of get after the players a little bit more and see if we can push them a little bit harder um, to see if, you know, the ceiling can be raised a little bit. But that that's just how I always wanted to be dealt with as a player um, because I think confidence is something that is really important in the women's game, just the reassurance and just kind of reflect and take a lot of pride on what the preparation's been. And then as a coach, how do you handle a situation when the ref is making bad calls? And what do you tell your players to keep a cool mindset? Are you suggesting we have bad referees? <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe that happens. Um, it's it's something you can't control, right? All you can control is your reaction. You can control your emotions. You can control kind of your focus. Um, I think there's times where we talk about people being frustrated you know, to me, frustration is kind of a selfish act. It's, you know, that becomes all about me. Um, but I think you have to overcome those obstacles in any game, right? It could be an opponent. It could be the referee. It could be the fans, the weather. It can be anything. So we we preach a lot about, you know, staying in the mindset, staying focused on the task. Um, you cannot control the referee. And if the referee gets to you, then that's something we're going to need to work on. It's definitely a challenge to not get passionate about it. I think for me, if if it becomes down to player safety, that's when I'm going to 
speak up more than, you know, if it's just a bad call, you know what I mean? So that that's where I draw the line as far as getting involved with the referee. You are the director of the ID2 camp for girls. What are some trends you're seeing in your ID2 camps? And what is it that makes certain players stand out? Yeah, the ID2 has been interesting because, you know, I think I've been doing it for seven years now and just the players have changed a little bit in terms of tactical understanding, you know, their soccer IQ, um, their technical ability, um, you know, decisions that they're making within the game, their creativity. So things that I look for is obviously a well-rounded, you know, are you technical? Do you have decent pace? You know, I look at pace as kind of, or speed, um, technical speed, tactical speed, and pure speed, right? So not everybody's going to be as fast as somebody else or technical as somebody else, but you should have at least two of those three to be able to help with the speed of play. Um, So those are things that I look for. I look for players that are always scanning. Um, Their vision is very good, meaning their awareness. Do they know, you know, as a ball's coming in, what the next action is going to be. So are they thoughtful type players? Um, And then the other is, you know, we're at ID2, we're, you know, we're going across the country and we're trying to compare players, right? And we're trying to put together the best 18 players to go on to it, go on an international trip, right? So not only am I looking at players individually, but also collectively, how are they going to work together? So if I have a smaller midfielder who's super technical, do I need a player next to them that maybe is a little bit more physical to relieve that pressure for that player to be successful and what their strengths are? So um, there's, you know, those different components to kind of look for. But I think, like I said before, not all players develop at the same pace, right? Um, at ID2, since we're looking at 2010s or U13s, is that U13? Yeah, it'd be the U13. Yeah. 14, U14, um, what is their potential? Like if I am going to take them on an international trip, they're going to gain experience. So is it always, you know, the biggest, fastest player or is it potentially the best player that's going to develop after this type of experience? Like looking at the long-term kind of positioning for them. So it, it's a it's a tricky formula and it's not really like black and white on what we're looking for. Um, but I think there's nuances as far as, you know, really the awareness of on the field is a big one for me. And then what would be your advice to like 10, 11, 12 year old girls who have the potential to play in the ID2 when they get a little bit older? I would, I would say one thing that we always talk about when we get into the ID2 is you were brought in for a reason. Like you were scouted for a reason. You were scouted for a certain strength that you have. Um, and don't let coaches kind of take you away from your own style or you try to alter your style because you think the coach wants to see this, right? So I always just try to remind them of be your own individual, have your own style. Obviously, you got to work on both sides of the ball, like the defending piece and that responsibility. Um, but I love players that are going to show their own kind of personality and you can kind of see that come through that I don't want them to lose their creativity. I want them to take care of their responsibilities, but I think they all need to have their own identity and the identity comes from them. And, you know, as a coach, our job is to layer in extra things to build on what your strengths are. So I would say just be true to what your style is, how you want to play and why you're passionate about the game.
how do you think have other women's national teams closed the gap on the longtime dominant U.S. women's national team? And what can we take away from it for the future U.S. women? Well, you probably know that answer, um, considering Spain won. Um, but I think the teams around the world have definitely closed the gap. And I think there's a big contributing factor, and this is probably a longer conversation, but I think we need to provide more opportunities. And we have a big gap, in my opinion, is when we go from high school and we go to college, right, the better players are the best players for four years in college, where in Europe and other countries, when they get to the age of where we would be going to college, they're going to go play with women who are pros. Um, so I think they're accelerating in their development where we're kind of stalling a little bit. Um, so I think we're going to have to either look at our system as far as opportunities. That's where I think you're starting to see some players skip college and go straight to Europe to play. Um, but their leagues have been formed. The best are playing against the best, right? Which we don't necessarily always have in college. Um, but I think, we need to really, like I said, look at our system and say, okay, what do we want to be doing? If we want to compete on the world stage and we want to continue to stay dominant, we need to be more sophisticated as soccer players, our tactics as a team. Um, we can't just rely on, oh, we're, you know, we have grit and we're physical and we're fast. I think the game's just become too sophisticated within that. So I think overall there needs to be a revamp of our system on the women's side um, because we don't have the same challenges as much as what the men have, right? We don't have all the sports that the women, you know, the guys can go play and the women, you know, we don't have as many, we're not going to go play football and, you know, baseball, that type of thing. So for me, we need to look at it and to make sure that our players are in the best position to be challenged on a daily basis. How do you think can Tampa produce a stronger player pool on the boys and girls side? I think we continue to do what we're doing. I think right now, um, since I've been here, I think I've seen the level of coaches that, you know, we have at the club. Um, we we're like drawing from like vast backgrounds. And the good thing here is we actually get to share on the boys side and the girls side, like, you know, you're out looking at the boys practices, the guys are over watching our practices and we all share in that. Um, and to do that, that's going to make the coaches better, right? And then the coaches are going to help make the players better. So I think we take a lot of pride in developing players, especially on and off the field. But I think we've done a very good job of placing players where they need to be, challenging players when they need to be challenged, um, and creating environments for, you know, an interactive type where the the soccer player at Tampa is – you know, they're, they're invested in their own development, right? They, they want to get better. They know they have the resources to get better. It's not just like roll the ball out and go play. Like we're not going to have necessarily the big athletes. If you're talking about big, meaning tall, athletic, fast, kind of like Georgia, that's what we play against in the ECNL, but we have a very good soccer team who understands the game and we're playing as a collective unit. So I think, I think we're doing what you've asked as far as developing a deeper player pool. And it's really just digging in on the development side as individuals. And then as a team, if it's for the players and if it's for the coaches. If you hadn't pursued soccer, what do you see yourself doing? 
<laughs> I ask that my, every day. What am I doing? Um, I originally wanted to be in the FBI, which I don't think I would want that decision. So I'm glad I didn't make that decision. Um, I honestly like being outside. Um, so I would probably be like a landscape designer and just completely, you were talking about just completely away from sport, right? Yep. Yeah. 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 That's what I would do. Wow. That's just curveball yeah. for you. Yeah. that's very. <laughs> and then what's a funny fact about yourself that most people don't know? I don't know if it's a funny fact that you, I, I don't know a funny fact. Um, I think something that probably people wouldn't know is that I, I love dogs. I actually have four dogs. I would probably have like 10 dogs if I could. Um, I don't know if that's a funny fact or not, but I'm very much a pet lover. And so anything that is furry is probably going to be at my house in terms of, you know, having the dogs, having the companionship. I've just always had them. So I would like lots and lots of dogs. So probably when I'm an old lady and I'm in the landscaping business, I'll have about 20 dogs when I retire. Yeah, that's the exact opposite of with our family. So we have four kids, but our mom's like, yeah, we're not getting pets. Four kids is enough. You don't have any? You know, pets? No, no pets, pets at all? Yeah, we've never had a wow. pet. Wow, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'll get you one when you graduate. Yeah. I'm sure your mom will love that one. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. Hopefully by then I've moved out of the house and then she'll be like, yeah. yeah. I'll do that. I'll do so, it. That'd yeah. be funny. So our tagline is go through life with goals. What's a current goal you're working on right now? Oh, that's a good one. Um, my goal right now is, and we haven't really talked about it, um, is I want to win another World Cup. So I was uh, the U.S. para women's head coach, and we won the World Cup, the first women's World Cup, right, for the Paralympic team. And it just got announced that next summer we're going to have another World Cup. So I want my goal is to win back-to-back -back World Cups and remain a dominant force um, in the world and kind of being the, the measure for everybody as far as what it's supposed to be and what the standards are. I don't know if you've heard of it, but we have U.S. soccer, we have the youth national teams, and then there's an extended national team. An extended national team has probably 12 different teams. It could be futsal, it's men's and women's Paralympic, um, which is to qualify as to have um, cerebral palsy, um, traumatic brain damage, or if you've had a stroke, that would qualify you to be eligible for this team. Um, they have deaf, they have power, which they're in right now as a World Cup, which is in the wheelchair. Um, and they have sand soccer and they have some other things. But our deaf team just won the World Cup. The women's para team has won the World Cup. And then our power team is there now. So it, it's creating opportunities for players that may not have ever been, you know, they're not going to have opportunities with the youth national teams or compete on a world stage. So it's grass court um, and sands is to provide the opportunities um, for players. And the women's team was established kind of last year, right? That was, so they were like, you know, we're going to have a world cup. The men have been around for a while. Um, our men's team is I think third or fourth in the world. Ukraine actually just won the World Cup for them the same year we did. Um, and they play seven aside. The men play seven aside, and the women play five aside. For now, it's going to eventually be seven and seven. 
Um, but there's just some different rules within that as far as um, levels of disability and kind of how you rank and kind of the combinations of what the rules are. The, the field's obviously on a smaller field compared to the 11 aside. Um, but it's a growing sport within the world. And I think there's up to maybe seven countries now that have a team. So we're hoping that it just continues to grow year after year and each federation starts to put money into, you know, creating the opportunities. But last year um, we competed in Spain and then next summer, obviously we'll be in Spain again in Madrid. So hopefully we can pull it off. It's been a very, very rewarding opportunity for me because I didn't know what to expect because I don't have any experience. I didn't have any experience with it. So I I was asked because I think my previous experience with the youth national teams, like my name was kind of in and around it. And they asked if I'd be interested. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I will absolutely come in. So I've learned a ton. I this amazing support unit with that. And now I'm just kind of invested in trying to find more players to be part of it as we'll probably have a couple camps before that World Cup coming up. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, it's great. It's really good. It makes you realize like, I mean, I haven't been around a lot of people that had stroke or traumatic brain damage, you know, I've been around cerebral palsy, but like some of the athletes had a stroke and their life changed just in like one day and one moment. And you hear about some of these things and you start to realize like how grateful you are to be in the sport. And it's refreshing to be around athletes that don't feel entitled. They're just super appreciative to have the opportunity. They thought they would never wear a U.S. crest. They're wearing it, you know, and it's just something that you take away and it just kind of reminds you as a coach, like why you're doing it. And that there are people out there that just appreciate it and they don't necessarily always get the opportunities. Wow, that's really cool. So last question for you today. What advice would you give your 12-year-old self as a soccer player? Mm, that's a good one. I think it goes back to what we talked about is just being passionate and enjoying the game. I think a lot of times stress comes in if it's from your parents or if it's from your coaches or whatever. And it just gets to be too much at times, the competitive side. Um, I remember I was actually, I think at 12, I was like cut from my team. I didn't make it. And I was like, okay, that was my first adversity. And I just went to the next team and ended up that team ended up being better. And it, it just always reminds me of, even if you're going to deal with adversity, there's a reason why it's happening and you hope that you fall forward. So, uh, I would say just to continue to do what you love, continue to believe in what you're doing, um, just because one coach doesn't think you're a good player, it's all subjective because there's going to be another coach out there that's going to really appreciate what your talents are um, and not to take so, some things personally. So like me being cut, I took it very personal. Um, and it actually forced me, my, my, my parents were like, well, just you need to go practice more or you need to try out for a different team with a different style. And, you know, I was a small player. And the coach that cut me was off of, you know, it wanted a big, fast, physical player. And that just wasn't me. So I think I took that personally. And I think that's something that I would tell myself is just stay focused on what you're doing. Control what you can control. And just always try to enjoy kind of the process, no matter if it's bad or good. Because usually the adversity part is the one that's going to make you better. 
Yeah, that's great advice. So thank you again for coming on the Soccer Life Goals podcast. Remember, go through life with goals. Thank you, Katricia. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Soccer Life Goals podcast. We appreciate your support. Please do us a favor by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. Let's grow soccer around the world and go through life with goals. Let's go!